Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app. Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From iHeartRadio, this is Missing on 9-11, the story of one woman who vanished on the eve of history and my quest to find her. I'm your host, John Walzak. My name is Del Teague. I'm the principal court attorney referee assigned to this matter. I'm at microphone one. And before us today is an absentee proceeding in the estate of Sneha Ann Phillip, file number 3542. May 27, 2004, surrogates court of the state of New York, County of New York. Sneha's family is here today, 989 days after 9-11, fighting for a death certificate recognizing that Sneha died on 9-11 at the World Trade Center. Representing the court is Del Teague, an attorney referee. 
Representing Sneha's family is attorney Mark Bogatin. And representing Sneha in absentia is Ellen Winner, the guardian ad litem. Also present today are Ron Lieberman, Sneha's husband, Anshu Philip, Sneha's mom, John Philip, Sneha's younger brother, Ken Gallant, Ron's private investigator, and Mark Freiberg, the attorney who represented Sneha before 9 11. Now, unfortunately, we don't have tapes of the hearing, so instead, we're using voice actors to recreate it. What you're about to hear is verbatim testimony, edited very lightly for clarity and flow. Listen closely. It's the only time you'll get to hear directly from certain people, like private investigator Ken Gallant, who have otherwise never spoken publicly about this case. You'll hear me interject occasionally. We start with attorney Mark Bogatin. Mr. Gallant, can you please tell us how you're currently employed? I'm a private investigator at Silverman Associates in New York. And can you tell us about your professional background and prior experience? Before, I was a special agent of the FBI for 23 years in New York. And when did you retire from that position? End of 99. And what unit were you assigned to when you retired at the end of 99? Special operations. And what is that about? What did that entail? Special operations would be dealing with white collar and drugs and organized crime, special investigations, undercover units, things like that. And since retiring from the FBI, have you been employed as a private investigator? Yes. And did there come a point in time when you were retained by Ron Lieberman in connection with... I was retained by Mr. Lieberman and his family shortly after the 9-11 incident. He came to our office and related a story that his wife had been missing. He had done quite an extensive search he himself initiated, but he wanted more. He wanted to expand the search and gain more knowledge and police liaison to try and determine the facts of where she was or what happened and any other information he could gather. And can you tell us, what did you do in connection with the investigation? The first thing we did was, uh, Mr. Lieberman had done a lot himself with posters and talked to friends and everything. The first thing we did was liaison with the police and get a hold of her computer. And as the investigation went on, we did an extensive search of her computer. What we were basically looking for is, we were trying to recreate where she was. Secondly, we wanted to determine if she had mentioned to anyone any intention she had of leaving, going anywhere, traveling anywhere. After that, we were going to expand the circle as to her activities, where she could have gone, how she could have gotten there, who she could have told, who she would have gone with. So with this type of investigation in mind, we spoke to co-workers, friends, family, barroom areas, and the clubs where she could have been. We determined that she was last seen in the area of Century 21, which is right where she lived. And we determined that we could never place her any further than where she lived in that six-block area. She had no indication she was going to go to any place. She had no indication that she was going to travel. There was no indication that there was any strife in her life other than that, but that she had friends at work. I spoke to people she worked with up there. They had glowing reports about her, and I could not determine that she was any place but near her home prior to that. And how did you determine that she'd been at Century 21? Century 21, the department store down there, had a tape, a video security tape of Sneha shopping. And that was the night before. I think it was early evening on the 10th. And she was in there, on the tape. She's with another girl. This is disputed. 
But Sneha had, on many occasions, she would stay over at friends' houses because Ron was working and things like that. So it was not unusual for her to not be home. But the information I received was that she always would come home early in the morning. Now, here's Ellen Winner, the Guardian ad litem. Mr. Gallant, I understand that one of the areas of investigation you or your company made was to inquire whether she might have stayed at the Millennium Hotel on the evening in question. Yeah. What was the purpose of making that investigation? The purpose of that investigation was we had placed her in Century 21 shopping. So we figured, well, if she came out of Century 21, maybe she went across the street and went into the bar room there, into the lounge and got a drink. It was a warm evening and why not? So we went in there, we interviewed all of the bartenders and showed her picture. And it was just a, I'll tell you what. It was a lead that was in the area. It was a close lead, and that's why I took it. When you say a close lead... Right next to Century 21. It was in the area where she lived. I wanted to know if she frequented that area, that hotel, which she did not. They didn't remember her. I think I spoke to four bartenders, and if anybody knows them, the bartenders would know. Did you inquire about whether she had taken a room at the hotel? Couldn't get that information, no. You inquired, but couldn't get an answer? When you were initially hired, was your job to find her, or was your job to determine that she had died in the World Trade Center? Well, when Mr. Lieberman first came, there was no set belief other than that they lived in the World Trade Center area. He came home, she wasn't there. All her valuables were in the apartment. So I don't know if you can say that we started out with any preconception. Mr. Lieberman came and said, I've done this, I want to expand it. I want to cover every base. I want to make sure that every area is covered to find her. Something happened to her, she's not here, let's look into it. I think we proceeded from that standpoint, not with any preconceived notion as to what happened. And as far as her staying at the hotel, I mean, her apartment was across the street. It was nearby, but not literally across the street. So, you know, I spoke to the bartenders more than trying to determine if she took a room or not. There was a history of, she had a history of some alcohol, significant alcohol use. Am I correct? She is correct. I don't know if I would say that. Do you know why she was fired from her previous job? Issues with substance abuse and tardiness. With respect to the computer search that you mentioned, as I read your reports, there was a certain point that you went to in the computer search, and then there was a possibility for a further search being done? Yeah. And am I correct? Well, was the second layer of the search done? The second, look, when you say- Let me ask the question. Go ahead. What was searched? What wasn't searched in terms of the possibilities here? Okay. What was searched were her emails. What were her private conversations with people on this machine? We were looking for, um, I spoke with my friend in Italy, and I'm going to go to Italy and paint, and I can't wait to get out of here, and I'm not going to tell anybody. We were looking for something like that. We found nothing, no indication that she was fed up with life in the area, her job, her personal life, no indication of that, and no indication of that with interviews with her family or anything like that. I believe they were planning activities in the near future. And this is just not indicative of an investigation of somebody who's, I'm going to plan activities, I'm not just going to pick up and leave. And then what further searches could have been done? I'm trying to tax my memory here. What further searches? 
We're talking about a computer. You can do extensive searches on a computer. You know what? I'm drawing a blank here. It was something that was, you know, I don't recall. Maybe Ron remembers what it was, but uh, it was not something, it was not a lead. Let's say this. When we conducted this investigation, we went from lead to lead to lead. That computer did not give us any leads, and that's how we would do it. We didn't get any leads out of that computer. Okay, and then with respect to the Century 21 investigation, my understanding is you spoke to a saleswoman who actually remembers Ms. Phillips shopping there. Yes. Was it from the saleswoman or from the film or from both that drew your attention to the fact that there may have been a companion? Actually, I think it was the sales girl. I don't think it was the video. The video we have Sneha in, I think, was a clothes rack. I don't think that the girl was with her in the video. We have a statement by a witness. Sonia Mora, the shoe saleswoman. I interviewed this girl, and what first came out, the girl said, oh, for sure, she was with this other girl. Then I interviewed her. It's possible Sneha was with her. It's possible that she had met. She's a friendly girl, so it's possible that they had been shopping together and became friends, then I'm not sure. Gallant is positing that maybe Sneha met a random woman at Century 21, and they started shopping together, which, okay. I could never find that girl, and I don't think we had video of that girl, which kind of, because I think the shopping in the dress area afterwards. The shoe area. And we don't have that girl with Sneha shopping in that area. Were you able to obtain the information about other customers who made purchases immediately before or immediately after Ms. Phillip did? No. You said that it was not uncommon for her to spend the evening away and then she would generally come back the next morning. Del Teague, the attorney referee. And you said you got no leads to show she was outside of her neighborhood. So does that mean that all of the people that you know of that she would have spent the night with also lived in her neighborhood? She was friendly with a couple of people at the hospital. She was really friendly with, I believe, with her brother's girlfriend or wife. She was friendly with her. I think she lived in the area, not too far. They all lived in the neighborhood, her neighborhood. Yeah, and I think there were a couple of clubs that she had gone to at some point. We went up there, and they had not seen her. You said you went up there. What do you mean? Approached people, bartenders, patrons. No one had seen her. Where is up there? How far away was it? Houston. Maybe, what, 10 blocks, maybe? Not too far. I think there was a club that maybe Ron and her had gone to or they had been to before or something. No leads. And when you looked at her emails, did you get to interview everybody who was a recipient of her emails? It was mostly her family. Mostly her family. We interviewed everybody. Any name that we ever came across, we interviewed. I don't think there was anyone who did not want to talk to us. Nobody we couldn't find. And you said she was planning future activities. Do you remember what those activities were? I think it was a wedding or something. A friend's wedding. Some sort of function, a family function. And I know she'd been involved in that. She talked about it. She was looking forward to it. I don't know. It was some family function. And then earlier you talked about her ID and glasses and things you would expect somebody to have would still be in the area. Could you just elaborate on that a bit? Got that from Mr. Lieberman. Her glasses, her license, I knew she couldn't see very well. So her glasses were, I think, in her apartment. Her ID, the normal things you would need to function outside were in her neighborhood, in her apartment, I believe, right? 
So you're saying that she went out without her glasses and without her wallet. Yes. Actually, I believed she used Ron's credit card to make the purchase at Century 21. She didn't even have her own IDs. She had his credit card. Did she wear contact lenses as far as you know? I believe she did. Did you speak to the people at Dr. Phillips' new job on Staten Island? No, I did not speak to them, no. NYPD Detective Richard Stark did, however. On September 28, 2001, Stark visited St. Vincent's Hospital and interviewed Sneha's boss, Dr. Susan Grossman. Grossman told Stark that she last spoke to Sneha on September 7, 2001, four days before 9-11. Strangely and coincidentally, Grossman's husband, Jeff Gross, is the co-founder of a Staten Island commune called Ghanas, which critics describe as a sex cult. In 2006, according to the New York Post, Gross was allegedly shot by a woman who claimed she had been forced to, quote, sleep with midgets and engage in lesbian sex. An ex-member told the Post that the commune was, quote, a freaky mix of weird characters, sexual shenanigans, prescription drug use, and harebrained psychology. Grossman didn't respond to multiple interview requests. It's unclear if Sneha ever visited the commune. Grossman was her boss for only 10 weeks before 9-11. There's also a comment in one of the reports that the investigation revealed Dr. Phillip to be a very complex woman. I'm quoting now, quote, a very complex woman who appeared to present different characteristics as a response to different people and situations. Could you explain what you meant by that? She was a complex person. She could... Like at the hospital, she had all different layers of friends. She could be very friendly with the chief surgeon. On the same token, she could be fighting with one of her interns. And then she could be friendly with the girl in medical records. This type of thing that she wasn't like consistent. She would go out. She would come home. I think that conversations with Ron would say, you know, look here, look at her friends, not just her intern friends, but someone else at work. She was friendly with everyone. She wasn't in a set, I only deal with this type of individual thing. She'll be friendly with everybody. Whereas the common thing was, I'm a doctor. I'm going to hang around with my doctor friends. I'm not going to be friends to this person who works in the boiler room. This type of thing. But she would babysit. I think that sometimes she watched doctor's kids for a short while. Which, you know, this is a a very... Not what you would imagine as a doctor would be. Do you know how many people lived in the building she lived in? How many apartments there were? How many units? It's a big building. It's big? Yeah. That's one down on, we're talking Battery Park. So the doorman couldn't positively identify her through that video. The video of a woman exiting the lobby of Sneha's apartment building at 8.43 a.m. on 9-11, right before the attacks began. No. No, no. And you said that she sometimes stayed at her brother's. You didn't know if this is a friend, girlfriend, or wife at night? It was his brother's wife, girlfriend. Just whatever you know from your memory. I don't remember. Okay, and did she also live in the same neighborhood as the... I believe she lived pretty close. Did she? Yeah. You don't know how close? No. And she didn't have any lead as to where she might have been that night? No.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. 
Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here again is Mark Bogatin, Ron Lieberman's attorney, and Ron. When was the last time you saw Sneha? It was on the morning of September 10th, 2001. Now, before we get to the events of September 10th and the 11th and their aftermath, I'd like to ask you, there's been a testimony, at least through the investigator, from Mr. Gallant, that Sneha did not spend the evening of the 10th at home in the apartment. Can you tell us, did Sneha ever spend an evening away from the apartment before? before the 10th. And can you also tell us whether or not there was any practice between the two of you in terms of either you or her or both of you spending an evening away from the apartment on occasion? Yes. Since Neha and I met being at school, we had a lot of friends together. And it was, even in Chicago, it was very common for us to sleep over at friends' house who lived in the area, either together or sometimes separately. We all knew basically the same amount of people, sometimes different people. Sneha and I lived together, but also respected each other's independence, too. And also, so when we came to New York, it was very similar like that. We made good friends. Sometimes, instead of coming home late, because we'd spend long times with our friends, we liked... Residency is tough. You really don't get out very often, so when you actually get out, you want to spend time with the people. These were all very good people that we know. And sometimes Sneha also, as it's been said... She's an extrovert. She knew a lot of people. She was an artist in her own right, and sometimes she'd meet people who are artists also. And there have been a few occasions where people that I didn't know that she stayed out. But it was definitely a common practice, maybe a couple times a month that either we'd stay out together or she might stay out alone. Sometimes when I was at work, she didn't like to stay home by herself a lot. So her brother lived close by, her cousin lived close by, friends of ours lived close by. So it was very common for her to go stay at their house. And do the two of you have the same work schedules, Sneha and yourself? No. Can you please describe her work schedule to me? Sure. Sneha was much more on a nine-to-five job with occasional calls. She was an internal medicine resident. I was an emergency medicine resident. And so sometimes that means I'm working overnight quite often. Start maybe eight, nine o'clock at night and I'll work through to the next morning. So it was a very confusing schedule. I often got my schedule only a couple of weeks before the preceding month. So it was very difficult. I'd try to write down for her so she could know, but she would always get confused. I'd show up and she'd say, I thought you were working tonight. It was confusing for me and confusing for her also. When she stayed out, would she tell you in advance that she'd be spending the night out? No. Sometimes it would just happen. This conflicts with what Sneha's cousin Anu told Unsolved Mysteries in 2002. She's never just spent a night out without informing us where she is, informing her husband where she is. It's never happened. Why would this night be any different? To me, the discrepancy between what Ron testified to in court and what Anu told Unsolved Mysteries indicates that either Sneha's family did not know her as well as they thought, or they lied to the media. It was actually one of our issues that I would always say, please leave me a note. Let me know where you're going to be. And it was getting better, but sometimes she would still, you know, she would forget. 
And did you stay out sometimes by yourself? Or as you said, you would work at night? I also would sometimes stay out by myself at friends' homes. And when Sneha did stay out, in fact, how often would you say that she stayed out from the apartment and spent the night outside of the apartment? I would say at least a couple times a month. And that was regular practice through the course of the marriage? Yeah. You've told us on occasion you and Sneha together would spend the night away from the apartment, maybe at a friend's house. How often would that happen? I think in about a month's time, usually it's a few times, if it's together or not. It would vary. Sometimes it would be more than that, too, so... And when Sneha did spend the evening away from the apartment, what was her practice in terms of returning to the apartment? Always. She'd come back early in the morning. Early the next morning? Yeah. Sometime between seven and nine. That was her usual pattern. Did she ever stay out and just not come back the next day and come back a day or two later? Did that ever happen? You mean to be away for a couple days? Yeah. No. Always Sneha came back. Always the next morning? Always the next morning. Now, who are some of the people that you've told us some of the people she did spend the evening with, or rather would spend or have on occasion? Can you please tell us who those people are? Her brother lived, especially at the time when we lived in Battery Park City, her brother lived basically across the West Side Highway, and her cousin lived on John Street. Those were probably the more common people. We had another friend who lived on the Upper West Side. And again, like I said, there was definitely sometimes that she would meet people that I didn't know, and she'd be out. How would you learn that she'd been with this person if you didn't know in advance? How would you learn it? Well, obviously, the next day, she'd come back, and I'd say, Sneha, what happened? And she goes, oh, I didn't know you were going to be home tonight. And I'd say, so where were you? She says, I remember one time she met a woman who was an artist, and they went back to the place and actually painted all night. She came back full of paint. Once in a while, that would happen. Or she would listen to bands playing all night sometimes. You mean a band in a club or something? Yeah. There's a place, a few bars close by we go to. There's a bar we'd go laid back places, very casual. Sometimes she would go and sometimes you'd go together. Yeah. And sometimes she'd come back and say she'd been at that bar or that club. That's right. Now, how long had you been married as of September 10th, 2001 at that point? Just about a year and a half. Can you please describe for us the state of your relationship at that point? Sneha and I had been friends since medical school. It was really an interesting connection between the two of us. Our past family lives were very similar. Our interests were very similar. We're both artists, as much as my wife is a painter and I'm a musician. She's also a musician, so we play a lot. So we were really great friends. We planned on having children together. My wife was always talking about having babies, and if anything, my reluctance was because I wanted to wait a little bit to finish residency and things. You know, we had planned to... We like to travel together. We take trips together as well. We've been to India before together. We've been to Europe together a few times. And even around that time period, it was, her birthday is October 7th, October 7th. And so I was planning a trip to take her to Europe around her birthday. I was going to surprise her and I was going to talk to her work about doing all these things also. So we were extremely in love with each other and planning for a great life. This is my wife's last year in residency, and now all the hard work is finally going to be finished. And we could start to really spend a lot of time together. So many times I'd go away on call and we'd talk all the time on the phone. It was difficult to be apart from each other, but that was the residency. And when did her employment at Cabrini end? About when? 
It was May of 2001. Well, that was when she got notice. She actually continued working until... Our year is basically July to June. So she worked until June, and then she started her new job in July. And what was her new job that she started in July 2001? It's a continuation of her old job. She was at St. Vincent's Hospital on Staten Island. That was the reason we moved down to Battery Park City, so it could be closer for her. She took the ferry to work. So it was just a continuation. She was going to finish her residency program at St. Vincent's. It was a very reputable hospital. She liked the people there. What was her reaction to her new employment? What was her state of mind at the Staten Island Hospital? She loved it. She felt finally she was in the place where she didn't have to be judged. She liked Cabrini a lot in the beginning, but it became difficult. There was so much prejudice against her over there. Ron claimed that Cabrini discriminated against Sneha because she was Indian and a woman. Now, you told us you saw Sneha for the last time, September 10th. Can you tell us when on September 10th and where you saw her last? Tell us about that. We came back from court that morning and we were with Mr. Freiburg. Sneha's attorney. It was a very quick proceeding. We came back home. We had a little bit of, probably got home around 10, 10.30. Had a little bit of breakfast. That's 10.30 in the morning, Mr. Lieberman? In the morning, on September 10th, yeah. And I left for work. I had to be at work by one o'clock and I was taking the subway. So I left about 11.30 to give myself an hour and a half to get there. So I kissed her goodbye. Actually, I forgot my keys and I got to go back in and kissed her again. And then I left. And did she tell you what her plans were for the day? Yeah, you know, we'd been so busy with work the last few weeks before that we really didn't have time to clean the house. It was getting a little bit dirty. So she was planning on cleaning the house that day. We'd started the day before, but obviously it was the weekend and we were rollerblading together and doing other things. So she was going to clean the house. And she had just got in some orchids from Hawaii that she was very excited about. The day before, she'd taken a whole roll of film just taking the orchids in different positions so she was very excited about it and then she i guess maybe taking a walk or something and was there any particular reason the apartment was going to be clean at that point did you have any plans our friends were coming over the next day on the 11th we had plans with sneha's cousin anu and rick they were going to come over for dinner that night on the 11th so we wanted to clean the house that we could prepare for them to come and you tell us Sneha was not working that day. Is that correct? No. And was she scheduled to work the next day, the 11th? No, she wasn't. Her next work day would have been the 12th. I think the 12th, yeah. And just tell us, when did you come home? You said you left for work about 11.30 on the morning of the 10th. Did you speak to Sneha during the course of that day? I think I called her, but I don't think we actually ever spoke that day. And when did you come home on the 10th or the next day, the 11th? When did you come home? Well, I came home the evening of the 10th at about 11.30 at night. And was she home? No, she wasn't. And again, when I came home and she wasn't home, I was expecting her to come home soon. But then again, I also knew her brother and her had been in a fight maybe a week before, and I knew she was off the next day. So I thought that maybe she was over there talking with her brother. I didn't want to call if they were in the middle of talking and get in the way. And I had to wake up very early the next morning. I had to be at work by eight o'clock in the morning. So I had to go to bed. I was thinking she'd probably come back, slip in bed with me at night, which she'd done before. And... And what time did you wake up on the 11th, the next morning? I woke up. 
I think I woke up about six in the morning. I needed to catch a 6.30 subway. And she wasn't there? She wasn't there. I was, of course I was concerned. So I was thinking in my mind, I wish she would have called me to let me know. But this is kind of part of our pattern. Also, it's something in our relationship that we're working on. For her to be able to inform when she was going to stay out. But again, it wasn't the first time. I didn't get overly concerned. I had figured that she'd be back the next morning. And even once I got, after all the things happened, I actually called back to the home to see if she was home. But there was just, the answering machine was on. Where were you when the Trade Center attack took place? I was at the hospital in the Bronx at Jacoby. And tell us what happened after that. So after we got word that the building was hit, the hospital went into an emergency condition. And actually, I'm an emergency room physician, so that was really when I was called to work. And in my mind, I didn't think that Sneha would have been involved. So I figured she'd either be at a hospital or some station helping out, like many of the other doctors down in Manhattan were. So I stayed. I tried to call home. At first, I was able to leave a message saying, Sneha, I don't know where you are, but call me at the hospital. And I left the number so she could call. She always forgot my phone numbers, so I left it on the machine. And then, of course, the phone lines went dead. Then I had to make a decision what I was going to do. And of course, at that moment, I said, I'm going to stay and I'm going to wait because we expected thousands of casualties to come. So about... I think it was about three o'clock in the afternoon when we realized nobody was coming up. Since from 10 o'clock to three, we were preparing, but nobody was coming. I told my director, I said, you know, I, I haven't heard from my wife yet. I want to make sure everything's okay. I, I just want to go back down home. I didn't realize what state lower Manhattan was in. So I took an ambulance. They were going down in Manhattan. I went down with them. In the meantime, I had my cell phone. I was trying to call people. I think I talked to her mother about three, four o'clock in the afternoon. She hadn't heard from anyone yet. It was only later that afternoon that I actually realized that her mother hadn't spoken to her. And then it slowly started coming about we didn't know where she was the night before because I think she had heard from my brother-in-law, John, who said that he wasn't with Sneha. I started calling around and nobody knew where she was the night before. I was concerned because I didn't know. Like I said, it's happened before that she's been in places where I didn't know, but it was concerning. It took me about maybe six or seven hours to get down to my apartment that day. It's a big saga to get down, to actually get down to Battery Park City. When I finally got down to my apartment, it was locked. They locked. About what time of the day are we talking about? What time was this? It's close to about, I think, somewhere between 9 and 10 o'clock at night. I got down in Manhattan about 5, and it took me a good 4 or 5 hours to get down there to my apartment. And what happened when you got into the apartment? Were you able to get in? No, I, I couldn't get in. The building was locked, and there was a light on the third floor. One of the other tenants happened to be there. I happened to have my pocket light from work, and I was flashing them. They came to the window and I said, can you please go knock my door to see if anybody was inside? I was afraid that maybe my wife was inside under the bed, frightened. They knocked on the door and said, there's no response. And then at that point, I didn't know what to do. 
And so what I did, I went and volunteered. I went and volunteered down across the street from Ground Zero at the uh, high school. I forget what it was called. And I stayed there until about two in the morning. Then I went back to my friend's house who lived in the West Village, and I stayed there overnight. When did you eventually get back to your apartment? The next morning. Now we're talking about the morning of the 12th? The morning of the 12th, yeah. Part of my feeling about going to volunteer was that I knew I could actually get... I realized how hard it was to gain access down there. And when I went to go volunteer, I was given a badge, and the badge allowed me access to go back down. So I went back down and I was able actually to walk around very freely down there. I went right back to my apartment and it was open this time. And I went upstairs. I went to the apartment. When I got to the apartment, the only thing I saw was dust everywhere in the apartment. We had two little cats and the footprints from my cats. There were no other footprints inside the house besides the cats. I had my digital camera and I took pictures of the apartment. Now, of course, I started getting worried. I was thinking at least by the night before... We would have heard from her. So I started taking pictures of the apartment and then I started collecting things that were important. Phone books, her phone book, my phone book. I had digital pictures of Sneha. My friends and I, before I left, we made a list of what to do. We felt we'd make flyers, be able to contact everybody. So that's basically what I did. And did you inspect the apartment to see whether anything was missing? Any of Sneha's? Yeah. I remember looking at the door to see if someone had actually forced their way in. At this point, I started thinking of everything. I, I tried to be as thorough as possible. I took pictures of the door lock so I could show people, and there really was no sign. The apartment was basically exactly the way I had seen it before I left, besides all the dust everywhere. Was any of Sneha's clothing missing? Any of her belongings missing? Nothing. Nothing. And again, in retrospect, at this point, I didn't know she'd gone to Century 21. We learned that later in the day. But... There were no bags, no new bags, no articles, no big bags from Century 21 that were sitting in front of the house. Nothing was changed at all. And at some point you looked for her passport and identification. Yeah, I, I was able to get back down there again. I was in multiple times. And at this point is when I started looking for signs. Could she have left? Could something have happened? There were no bags that were missing. Her eyeglasses, as Mr. Gallant said, were still in the house. Her driver's license, her passport, all her credit cards. The morning of the 10th, on the way back from court, we went to the bank. We stopped and took out $100 from the bank, so we split it. And I remember that we'd gone to a party earlier that weekend, on Saturday night, and she kept saying she was wearing her contacts that day. And she said, you know, Ronnie, my contacts are very old. They're hurting my eyes. On the way back from the subway that night, she actually took the contacts out and put them in her mouth because her eyes were hurting. And she was holding onto my arm as I was basically leading her back to the apartment. And so that day, she must have been wearing her old contacts because again, her glasses were at home. This may not seem important, but it is. It's a clue. In the Century 21 footage, Sneha is not wearing glasses Instead, it appears she's wearing old contacts, the same contacts that bothered her so much a few days earlier that she took them out and saved them in her mouth. Now, unless she planned to go somewhere after Century 21, before she left her apartment, why would she wear painful old contacts? Why wear them to just go shopping? Unless she planned to go somewhere to see someone after Century 21. Unless she cared about how she looked. 
So I think whatever Sneha did after Century 21, she planned ahead of time. It was not spontaneous, making it even more bizarre that the NYPD and private investigators found no evidence of any plans, no emails, phone calls to strangers, etc. The only people we know Sneha talked to on the afternoon of the 10th, right before she disappeared, are her mom, Anzu, and maybe one or both of her brothers, including her younger brother, John, who lived only a few blocks from Century 21. Anyway, back to Ron. You know, once we started getting into the idea that we couldn't find her is when we really started to brainstorm every single possibility, even though my wife and I had a great relationship. We went through everything, every single possible scenario. Could she have wanted to leave that I didn't know about? So then we checked her bags. Could there be someone that I didn't know about? So we checked her letters, checked her emails, started talking to friends, really good friends. I mean, I was very blunt and I was very frank with everyone saying, listen, if there's anything we should know, let's know. She was seeing before she left Cabrini and everything was going on, she started seeing a therapist. I went to go talk to the therapist. Any single idea that we could think of, we tried. There was a marina at Battery Park City. We tried to get a list of all the boats that left Battery Park City. We put up flyers. We called everyone that Sneha knew. We called everyone to say, listen, do you know someone that Sneha might know? People who moved away, people she was in college with, people she was in high school with, people from medical school. We tried to make every single contact we could. And then, of course, we started going to shelters, putting flyers up in shelters, contacting shelters, psychiatric institutions. Maybe we're thinking maybe she saw something that just damaged her mind. We didn't, didn't know. We started canvassing all the clubs, all the bars, everywhere that we used to frequent, all the restaurants we used to like to go to, anything possible that we could think of, we started to do. Including hiring a private investigator, not Ken Gallant, the first PI, whose name I don't know. Gallant was the second. This is around the same time the NYPD got involved also. We were thinking, could there have been foul play involved? They went to talk to the most likely person, would be the person Sneha had the altercation with before. The Cabrini doctor, Sneha accused of sexual assault in June 2001. They talked to him and they felt there was no way that there was anything. This is also a doctor who had not, they felt that there was nothing to it. And they went and searched. There are places in Manhattan called the Tombs. Jail. That they were detaining people. They went and searched those places also, saying there's no listing of Sneha in there. They checked police records to report anybody missing at the time. They checked ambulance records to see if anyone had been missing at the time. That night, there was no instances of any crime at all in Lower Manhattan. I tried to get a log of all 911 calls placed in Lower Manhattan from 5 p.m. on September 10th, 2001 until 8.45 a.m. on 9-11. The NYPD denied my request saying the records no longer exist.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. 
Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mr. Philip, are you Sneha's brother? Yes, I am. And when was the last time you saw her, had contact with her? About two and a half weeks before 9-11. This is one of three conflicting answers John gave about when he last saw and or spoke to Sneha. You just heard him say two and a half weeks before 9-11, around August 25th. But on September 29th, 2001, John told NYPD Detective Richard Stark that he last spoke to Sneha six weeks prior, around August 18th. And John told me eight or nine days before 9-11, around September 2nd or 3rd, August 18th, August 25th, September 2nd or 3rd. Three different answers. After she disappeared, did you put a stake in the effort by the family to find some trace of her? Yes, I did. And can you tell us what you did in connection with that effort, especially in conjunction with the other friends and family members? Describe what you went through and what you did. The first person I contacted the following day, 9-12, was Ron. Actually, I first contacted my mother. After that, I contacted Ron. Ron had put together a flyer and he had emailed it to me. At that point, I went down to my girlfriend's office on 34th Street where she worked and we made copies. I gathered together about, at that point, six friends to meet me there. I gave them each a stack of 100 flyers and they went out to distribute flyers. At that point, after I'd given them the flyers, I got on the phone. I started calling friends, family members. I called cousins in the city asking if they had heard anything and also asking them for additional help as far as, again, displaying the flyers. So the first day, September 12, we had a lot of people going throughout New York, mainly towards Midtown, Downtown, The Village, West Village, Union Square area, posting flyers the whole day. From that point, I also, we spoke with the media to try and gain media coverage. Again, the objective was to get her picture out there, to get her face out there, to see if anybody had any sort of answers, any idea of where she may be or what may have happened to her. Because again, at this point, we had no idea what may or may not happen to her at that point, directly after 9-11. So we were looking for clues. After that point, that week, two weeks, three weeks consecutively, this is what I was doing, continuously, you know, to the point where I was waking up every single day and my job was to put up flyers. I dropped my, I had a business at the time I was running. I put that on hold. I also had my employees who worked for me give out the flyers as well. These flyers ended up, from what I understand, to be all over the city. It reached all of Manhattan, the Upper West Side, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens. So these are the things I was doing. And in addition to posting flyers, helping distribute flyers, did you also have occasion as part of your efforts to find some trace of her? Did you also go to clubs, restaurants, bars, places of that nature? Yes, I did. And can you please tell us about that? What you did in terms of that effort? I would say, Approximately three or four days after I was giving out the flyers, I started focusing on going down to bars and clubs, mainly in the East Village, Alphabet City, Union Square area, places that I thought she would hang out, places that I thought she would be around. There wasn't a particular bar or a particular lounge that I knew she would go, but particular areas and scenes that she liked to be around. She liked to be around more of an artistic scene, more of both the West Village and Lower East Side. The restaurants down there, the small lounges, the small cafes, she enjoyed hanging out at those places. Had you been to some of these places with her? Yes, I'd been to some of these places with her. 
One of those places that I did go with her was a club called Centerfly, which I think we may have gone to two months prior to 9-11. We had danced over there. That was one club that I don't think she frequented that club again. I don't remember her frequenting any particular club, but that was the last one that I went to with her, so I went to that particular one. I talked to bartenders, public doormen, and yes, to answer your specific question. And you had her picture and you showed her picture? I showed her picture, yes. And the results of all that was negative, I take it. Excuse me? What was the result of all those efforts? Negative. Nobody had seen her. Nobody had... A lot of people didn't even recognize her. And so, yes, the efforts, unfortunately, didn't bring anything up. Bogatin wrapped up questioning John. Surprisingly, Ellen Winner, the Guardian ad litem, had no follow-up questions. Next up, Sneha's mom, Antu. Tell us about your contact on Monday, September 10th. Monday, I was at work. I don't know if I said hi first or she did, because I was online in the instant messenger. One of us started chatting, you know, instant messaging, and she told me, I just finished my meditation. And then she told me all about Saturday night. She was ecstatic, you know, how great Ronnie was and about the party and how happy she was. She was just so proud of Ronnie, and she was just so, so happy. And then I said, what are you doing today? And she said, Mom, you saw my house. It's a mess. So I'm cleaning up because we had invited Anu and Rick. Anu is her cousin. Anu and Rick for dinner tomorrow. So I'm cleaning up the house. That's what I'm doing, she said. And then she said, I'm repotting some plants. And she had got some orchids from Hawaii, and she was attending to that. And she was talking all about that. And we chatted for almost an hour. And then she said, Mom, I better get back to my cleaning, otherwise I won't get anywhere. And that's all she said. And that was the last contact you had with her? Yeah, that's the last contact I had. Antu testified that she and Sneha were extremely close. Surprisingly, again, Ellen Winner had no follow-up questions, but Del Teague, the attorney referee, did. I just have one question. When you chatted with her on the 10th, on that Monday, September 10th, did she give you any idea she would be going out and what she was going to be doing that evening? No, if she had any plans, she would have told me that's the way our relationship is. You know, we always tell everything, you know. I tell her and she tell me, we are like friends. So she would have told me, mom, I'm going shopping. You know, maybe I'm going to go. She would have told me, but I don't think she planned to go out. I think she got tired of cleaning the house, repotting, because when I went back to her apartment later on, you could still see in the bathtub she was repotting the plant. This is interesting. Again, like the contacts, it seems unimportant. And maybe it is. Maybe it doesn't matter at all. But if Anzu returned to Ron and Sneha's apartment after 9-11 and the orchid repotting soil was still in the bathtub, That means Ron got home the night of 9-10 after a long day working at a hospital and didn't shower. It also means Sneha did not come back after Century 21 and shower. So, two quick questions. Did Ron actually get home around 11.15 p.m. on 9-10? And did he stay the entire night in the apartment? After Ansu finished testifying, the evidentiary hearing ended. But the court case was not over. A few months later, on September 30th, 2004, Detective Stark testified at a different hearing. Here's Ellen Winner, the guardian ad litem, and Stark. Were you aware that she had a drinking problem? Yes. And were you aware that she had a drug problem? The drugs, I didn't know about that. 
There was a hint of having a drug problem, but I had no proof. There were no facts about that. Someone close to Sneha confirmed to me that she did use drugs heavily. Did you consider whether her disappearance and or death could have been caused by excessive drinking or drugs or related activity? In the beginning, it was considered uh, just by, you know, she liked to go out and have a good time. And she would drink possibly all night long and then come home. That's why all the checks were done on all the hospitals and the morgues. Were you aware, other than Cabrini, her termination at Cabrini, were you aware of any difficulties on her job at St. Vincent's? Yes. And could you tell me what those were? She was seeing a counselor, I believe, and she missed the session and they put her on, I guess they would consider it modified. On my job, it would be modified duty, where she couldn't practice medicine until further notice, until she saw a counselor. I'm sorry? Until she saw the counselor and straightened everything out. And do you know what her counseling was with regard to? It was for alcohol and drugs. Were you aware of any romantic or sexual relationships that Dr. Philip had outside of her marriage that could have been a cause for disappearance or unexplained behavior? Not any one person. I was informed that she did have outside marriage sexually, but there was no name put to that. There was no regular romantic involvement? Not with one person. There was no name ever brought up of a certain person. Uh-huh. And did you have cause to investigate her in that regard? Yes, just by talking to her brother and talking to her husband. Ron is the one that informed me about it. And what was your understanding of how she met possible partners? Well, it was from drinking, from being out in the bar. And did you consider the possibility that a person who she met in such an encounter could have done her ill and caused her death? No, there's no one person. Detective Stark dismissed the idea of foul play, of kidnapping or murder, of a random crazed killer. 9-11 was the likely answer, he said. But Judge Renee Roth did not necessarily agree. After examining the facts and all the testimony you just heard, she declined to expedite the issuance of a death certificate certifying that Sneha died on 9-11 at the Trade Center, noting that technically the case was still active and there was no physical evidence supporting the theory that Sneha died during the attack. She wrote, quote, The testimony indicated that the absentee and petitioner were having marital problems and that she often stayed out all night with individuals not known to her husband whom she met at various bars. The proof regarding other details of the absentee's life and personal relationships was often fragmented and even contradictory. Detective Stark testified that in the course of his investigation, he discovered that in addition to the marital discord, the absentee had alcohol and possibly drug abuse problems, which appeared to have interfered with her job performance. And... Moreover, the detective testified that at the time of her disappearance, the absentee had been suspended from practicing at her current hospital, St. Vincent's, because she had failed to comply with the hospital's requirement that she attend substance abuse counseling. Petitioner conceded that Cabrini Hospital fired his wife, but he also claimed that the real reason was not the claimed alcoholism, but was instead racial and sexual bias against her by her co-workers. His testimony regarding the absentee's subsequent residency at St. Vincent's Hospital also diverged from the detectives in that Petitioner insisted everything was going well there. Moreover, he failed to inform the court about the counseling requirement as well as the fact that the absentee had been suspended because of her noncompliance. And this. 
There are additional disparities between the documentary evidence and testimony with respect to the interactions between the absentee and her husband that morning at court. According to the police report, Petitioner told the police that he and the absentee had a, quote, big fight at the courthouse because he was upset the absentee was abusing drugs and alcohol and was conducting bisexual acts. The police report indicates that the absentee stormed out of the courthouse, leaving Petitioner behind. On the other hand, at the hearing in this court, the petitioner's description of that morning's events was materially different from what he had told the police. He said nothing about any argument, and instead described only harmonious interaction between himself and the absentee. Petitioner did, however, admit that he and the absentee were having problems because of her habit of staying away from home at night without letting him know her whereabouts. As to the night of September 10th, he testified that he was not overly concerned when she did not return home because that had happened before, and he expected her to come back in the morning. He also said he thought she might have been at her brother's house because she and her brother had had an argument, and he thought that she may have gone there to try to patch things up. As it turned out, her brother testified that their last contact was about two and a half weeks before the absentee disappeared. It is noted that the police report indicates that the absentee's brother told the police that he had argued with the sister because he had found her and his girlfriend in his apartment having sexual relations. The inconsistencies between what Petitioner told the police during the investigation, on the one hand, and his testimony in this proceeding, on the other hand, materially undermine his credibility. As a consequence, he has failed to develop a cohesive picture of the circumstances leading up to the absentee's disappearance. We now turn to the relief requested. The first question is whether there is clear and convincing evidence to establish the absentee's exposure to specific peril. This phrase, specific peril, is critical. Remember it, specific peril. Namely, the terrorist attack on September 11th, 2001. It is observed that the record is devoid of anything to tie the absentee to the vicinity of the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001, or to any other specific peril. Nor is there anything in the record to explain why this 31-year-old woman has not contacted her mother, with whom the record establishes she had a close, loving relationship. Although Detective Stark, in response to a question by petitioner's attorney, suggested that the absentee could have returned to the area of her apartment building and gone to help the victims of the attack, his rank speculation has absolutely no foundation in the record. We turn for a moment to the video, shot several minutes before the attack, of a woman leaving the lobby of the building where the absentee lived. This video was not produced in court. Although Detective Stark, in his testimony, said the woman was similar in height to the absentee and both had straight dark hair, the absentee's husband and the private investigator he hired both testified that they could not identify the blurred and professionally enhanced image of the woman on the tape as the absentee. As mentioned earlier, the latest police report indicates that the case remains open, as do the questions about the absentee's actions after she left the department store with her purchases on the evening of September 10th. The purchases themselves, $500 worth of bed linens, lingerie, and shoes, have never surfaced. Although Petitioner has not established that the absentee died as a result of a specific peril, the court is satisfied that sufficient proof has been submitted to establish that a diligent but unproductive search for her was conducted and that death is the only logical explanation for her continued absence.
Judge Roth wrote off the idea that Sneha used 9-11 as cover to voluntarily disappear. Notwithstanding the turmoil in her life, there is no indication that the absentee was about to run away from her problems or to abandon her hard-earned profession. Furthermore, Petitioner and the absentee's criminal attorney agreed that she was not particularly concerned about the outcome of the false complaint charge, but believed that, at worst, she would be charged with a misdemeanor. Moreover, it appears that it would not have been overly difficult for her to rectify her problem with her current employer, and her family was adamant that she would never have just walked away from her hard-earned career. Nor is there any basis to believe that she would voluntarily fail in all this time to contact her mother. If there was one aspect of the absentee's life about which there was consensus, it was that she was devoted to and extremely protective of her mother. They visited each other frequently and communicated either by phone or email almost daily. According to everyone who knew the absentee, she would never choose to cause her mother pain. In other words, if the absentee were alive, she would have contacted her mother by now. Based on all the foregoing, the absentee's death is fixed as having occurred on September 10, 2004, three years after she disappeared. Next time on Missing on 9-11. I get asked by, by victims' families, do I think, as a scientist, are there remains buried at fresh kills? And my answer is yes, absolutely. No specific homework this week, but if you know anything, you can reach us by phone at 1-833-NEW-TIPS. That's 1-833-639-8477. Again, 1-833-639-8477. Or you can reach us via email at tips at iheartmedia.com. That's tips, T-I-P-S, at iheartmedia.com. Ron Lieberman, voiced by Seth Nicholas Johnson. Ken Gallant, voiced by Matt Frederick. Mark Fogarton, voiced by Noel Brown. Ellen Winter, voiced by Holly Fry. Del Teague, voiced by Tracy V. Wilson. Judge Renee Roth, voiced by Lauren Vogelbaum. John Phillip, voiced by Taylor Shacoin. Anzu Phillip, voiced by Indra Dadagupta. Detective Richard Stark, voiced by Ben Bowen. And Mark Freiberg, voiced by Chris Brown. Ben Bowen is our executive producer. Paul Deccan is our supervising producer. Chris Brown is our assistant producer. Seth Nicholas Johnson is our producer. Sam Teagarden is our research assistant. And I'm your host and executive producer, John Walzak. Cover art by Pam Peacock. Special thanks to Tamika Campbell at iHeart and to Christoph Zapri in New Orleans. Archival audio from Unsolved Mysteries provided by Cosgrove Muir Productions. Also, thank you to the staff of the New York County Lawyers Association, the staff of the New York County Surrogates Court, and Aesop Rock. Original theme music by Aesop Rock. Check out Aesop's website at aesoprock.com. You can find me on Twitter at at John Walzak, J-O-N-W-A-L-C-Z-A-K. If you like this show, check out our first season, Missing in Alaska, about the 1972 disappearance of two congressmen. Missing on 9-11 is a co-production of iHeartRadio and Greenfort Media. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. 
Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.